Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Christy Dempsey and I met our first week of college at Furman University 30-something years ago. So it's been great fun for me to watch her career as a picture book writer grow. Christy Dempsey has just released her ninth book, Papa Put a Man on the Moon, from Dial Books. School Library Journal said, This picture book is a stunning tribute to members of the author's own family who worked in a textile mill that produced fabrics for the Apollo 11 spacesuits. I was very happy to catch up with an old friend. I think you're going to like listening in. Christy Dempsey, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. Um, this is uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, your new book, Papa Put a Man on the Moon, and uh, all kind. Of, we have a lot to talk about. We have lots of lots of uh, uh, well, common ground to talk about. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I um, I think the last time we talked, I was even laughing about how long we've known each other. I've known you most of my life. It's That's been right. 30, and that was. Um, it's still always surprising to me that we're that old, Jonathan. <laughs> I know it. Well, I'm about to. We're about to find out exactly how old I am because one reason I'm interested in Papa put a man on the moon is because uh, when the moon, when I was born, the moon, the people who went to the moon were still in quarantine. Ah, uh, yeah. And so now that we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. We know how old I am this summer. Right. Well, me too. I, the moon landing happened just before I was born as well. So uh, yeah. this is our big year. This is I've, I've had a few, you know, turning 50 this year. It's given me, I have this list of five for 50 things that I'm doing this year and um, trying to challenge myself a little bit and uh, just the halfway point reflecting so it's a yeah. good it's a good age to be somebody asked me the other day what age the middle schoolers at my school asked me what age i would be if um if i could be that age for the rest of my life and i was like you know this is a pretty good age my kids are grown up and more independent and yeah. you know doing well and i'm getting to do some fun things so i agree not too bad we've no. got it we've got it pretty well that's right um okay so papa put a man on the moon um Tell us about that. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, Papa Put a Man on the Moon is a picture book. Um, I, I'm i a picture book writer. I, I write more than just picture books, but I've published nine picture books so far. And this was a book that was several years in the making. It's a family story. My mother grew up on the Mill Hill in the Mill Village in Slater, South Carolina. And there was a textile mill there um, that... In the 1960s, when all the cotton was getting sent to Asia, they kind of innovated, and they got a NASA contract to produce a fabric called beta cloth, and that beta cloth was used as one layer in the astronaut spacesuit. And beta cloth really was developed. It was developed by a Chinese immigrant, a NASA engineer named Frederick Dawn, um, and his story itself is really incredible. Um, but he developed this fabric in response to the fire that happened on the Apollo 1 testing pad, you know, when, when the three astronauts died. And so this was a fireproof layer of fabric um, in the exterior part of the spacesuit. And this J.P. Stevens plant in Slater, South Carolina, made this fabric. And my grandparents, actually, my grandparents and aunts and uncles and mother and father all worked at this plant at one time or another. Wow. And so it was this 
community of humble, hardworking people that really were just doing their jobs. And then when the moon landing actually happened, they realized even more just um, that they were part of something bigger than themselves. And so the story is told through the eyes of a little girl who's really proud of her father, who kind of says, you know, Daddy, aren't you proud you work for the president? Because, (laughs) you know, Kennedy was the one who said we're going to the moon in this decade. Um, And so she... She's excited about this possibility that her father is contributing to something um, big. And uh, it, it is kind of, it's a celebration of all the people that did uh, contribute to the moon landing. There were over 400,000 people that were intimately connected really? in producing producing things. If you, you know, all the screws and nuts and bolts and everything that went into putting men on the moon. But if you think about it, there really were even more than that with the truck drivers that took these things to NASA and all the all the different ancillary people who were also involved. And so it really was the effort of a nation and um, a huge accomplishment at the time and even now, I think. Um, but more so, just for me, just the quiet work ethic and dedication that this small community had to doing their jobs and making a living and living in community with others. Uh, that's what I wanted to celebrate. So, I wanted to celebrate their, you know, their life, really. Uh-huh. So is this story about your people, about your relatives? Yeah, well, so the the moon landing fabric, or what, what I call the moon landing fabric, the beta cloth was actually produced in one part of the... Um, of the factory. So it's there. I have spoken with one woman that did actually work on this project. And, and then there was some coming and going of different people and different people worked at different times. And so, you know, it's, it's possible that my actual papa didn't work on this particular project, but Uh I do, we do know people in the community that did. And I do know that, um, it was a really, the full weight of what they were contributing to didn't hit until the moon landing actually happened. Because I think there was some doubt, too, is, you know, is it ever going to happen? Uh-huh. Is Russia going to get there first? Are we going to, you know? Yeah. And so, um, you know, the pride probably didn't come until later okay. in, in realizing what they were involved in. Yeah. So the, the narrator of the story is not like your mother as a little girl or anything like that? It's, it's just Not a, really, no, yeah, because... And because my mom was, you know, I was born that year shortly thereafter. Oh, so yeah, my mom right. Was of course. Um, but she does have my mom's name, Martha Ann. Oh. And, um, <laughs> yeah, and that was actually part of the story that was difficult for me because I wanted um, I wanted to represent the truth. Uh, I wanted to honor the people in this community. Um, but then a lot of my connections to the Mill Village were are my family stories, you know. Uh-huh. So originally the story was terribly long. I mean, it was like over 2,000. 2,000 words, which is way too long for a picture book. And I had all these threads in there that didn't connect, really, to the main focus of the story. Really good threads. I mean, there was a lot more to these people's lives that I, you know, was unable to keep in the story. There was a conflict between Martha Ann and her best friend because Martha Ann viewed her best friend's father's job as more prestigious than her own father's job or feared that it was more prestigious. And, um, you know, so there was there were all these threads that kind of, to the motivations, Martha's motiv- Martha Ann's motivations, um, and things like that. But then eventually those had to be cut. And it really took me a long time to write this story, partially because while I wanted to represent the truth, I also wanted it to be universal. I wanted it to speak to the 400,000 people who put a man on the moon, to, uh-huh. you know, that kind of pride. So the details, the 
exact details weren't as important as um, portraying kind of the overall theme of contributing to something bigger than yourself. Flannery O'Connor said the fiction writer has to make one country do for all countries. Yeah, yeah so, I think that's true. So I mean, you get to the universal and, by way of you know some specific story. Right, and which meant that I had to include some specificity, but then I also had to cut some specificity because it was too true to my story or, hmm. you know, the family that I knew that lived down the street from there or, yeah, so it, it was finding that right balance. And it took me several years to do that. And I finally got into gear when I realized that the 50th anniversary of the moon landing was coming up. This is about four years ago, I guess. And I thought if I'm going to get this published or have a chance to get this published, I need to, I need to get it finished and get it, you know, revised so that someone can consider it. And not that that's the only goal, of course, but, you know... I'm Sure, but if you're writing it anyway... Right, right, exactly. You said four, it took you four years to, to write this book? Yeah, probably about four years. Although the idea had been there forever because I knew I, I had known about this, you know, story for a while, so... Yeah. Um, <clears throat> how many... You said it was way too long to start with. How many words does one have to work with in a picture book? I'm sure it varies. You know, picture books have gotten shorter and shorter. Uh, Years ago, storybooks could be 2,000, 3,000 words long. They were, um, they were more like short, short stories or novels Uh or whatever. Um, But now, um, I don't know if it's a sign of the times that parents don't want to spend as long reading at night, (laughs) or, (laughs) um, or whatever it is. But our children's attention spans, maybe, but. Picture books, the marketing of picture books, the publishable picture books, or the ones that um, publishers want to publish, they usually run no longer than 750. And my shortest is something like 56 words or something like that. My, really? You know, a little Which one is rhyming uh-huh. mini racer. Mini uh-huh. racer is, you know, maybe, maybe 100 words. It's, it's really, really short. Um, those poetic kind of... Um, preschool picture books can be really short because the repetition and the sound um, contributes so much to the meaning and the enjoyment for the child. Yeah. Um, so I've written really short picture books, and then, but most of my picture books, especially like this one, that are more kind of historical fiction, fall within the six hundred to seven word range, seven hundred word range. And so, Boy, um, that is not much to work with. Not not much not. space to work with. It's not, and you know, there are novel writers that I know that say they would never be able to write a picture book because they can't, you know, apply the economy of words that right. they need. Um, yeah, I know. And it, then it is books. nice to be able to sort of stretch your stretch out a little bit, stretch your legs, get your elbows swinging, you know. Right, but then there are people like me that are like, oh, I have trouble writing a novel because I can't carry the, you know, for the whole narrative arc or whatever. It's it's hard for me to keep going, so sure. I get lost in the muddy middle. Yeah. Um, but I love picture books, and I love. For me, I'm a little bit of a poet, or I consider myself a poet, and so that economy of words and kind of fitting a whole narrative arc, uh, really choosing words that that pack a punch, you know, that carry the full meaning of what you're trying to say, strong verbs, um, you know, sometimes not as much description as you normally would put in. You have to use, you have to let the verbs do the heavy work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, I love playing with that. and It's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle to me. I can see the whole picture, um, and I just have to figure out where to put the pieces. And so uh, I love picture books, but they are running shorter and shorter. Um, 
but it's I will always write them because it's my you know the I think the thing that carries me is the idea of a child with the picture book in her hand learning to read and yeah, you know that yeah. that that's a really gratifying feeling. So. <laughs> I should think so. Um, and I know th- I mean I know you don't illustrate your own picture books. Do- and probably don't have a whole lot of say into who does. Is that is that true? Yeah, so that's one of the things that's always surprising to people about picture books and traditional publishing is that usually the publisher decides uh, who the illustrator will be. And now that I've published nine picture books, my oh, really, honestly, from the very beginning, my publishers consulted me. They were like, who, you know, what kind of art do you see? Or do you have some suggestions? And you know, usually the suggestions I have are people that m- might not be available or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But then but then my publisher will find someone that's similar, that does a similar style, or, or they may even have a whole new idea. Uh-huh. And I actually, some picture book writers don't like that part of the process, but that is the part that's most exciting to me because you've got... You know, I've got a whole publishing house with an art director, an art director, and a whole team behind that, collaborating with the words that I've created. And they, you know, their intention is to do right by the book. They mm-hmm. want to extend the story and to complement what I've already done. And so, for me, it's actually really exciting to see how an artist can take my words and, you know flesh them to put them on paper and and make a picture and with my with my picture book uh superhero instruction manual it's like a it's an instruction manual on how to become a superhero seven easy steps and uh-huh. when i was when i was sketching out that story i drew a stick figure on the page and put a cape on him and put like a bike because it's this kid who who goes into his closet and tries to figure out what he can put on to make himself look super and so you know, put on a bike helmet, and he's he's got, like, a spatula in his hand or something like that. <laughs> Thermal oven mitts that, you know, are his thermoregulation detectors, or uh-huh. I don't even remember what I... So I just labeled out this picture as I was trying to figure out what he would search for in the house to make himself feel super. And as it turns out, the illustrator actually kind of ran with that idea for the cover of the book. And so, uh, you know, when it... When I mean, actually, truth be told, I don't even think he saw my idea. I never huh. sent that idea. He just, that was kind of the idea that he that he went with. And so it was kind of exciting to see how the artist's vision can match my own, and then sometimes it can extend it and further it and make it even more resonant for yeah. the reader. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do, do you have preconceived notions of what is going to be on each page? Um, and, and is your breakup of... of What's on a page spread? Does that stick? You know what I'm saying. So if you got a 32 page yeah. book. I assume you're you're offering, um, you're you're telling what's on each, which words go on each spread. Is that true? Yeah. Well, not not always. So okay. what I do is I originally write the story. I don't think about spreads at all. I uh, just get a complete story, a complete narrative arc on page, and then actually before I go back and submit it. I do kind of page it out and see what I think would be an appropriate pacing of the text. And then that helps me figure out where I might need to cut something. I mean, sometimes there will be two pages that kind of, in my mind, that might repeat the same idea. Uh Um, So I can figure out what to cut or where maybe I'm missing information that might needed to be added or 
um, where the text might could pause for a second. And so I do that. But then when I send it to the editor, I don't actually send it paged out like that. Uh-huh. I just make sure I make sure from my perspective that it could work in 32 pages or sometimes 48 pages, 40 or 48. I mean, occasionally it's that long. Um, and then I just send the text without paging to the editor. And then sometimes after it's accepted for publication, they will come back to me and say, did you page it out? Do you have any ideas? And, and I'll send that to them. But the majority of the time, uh, they don't even ask for it. And then the illustrator just decides how he or she thinks that the, that the you know, pacing should be on the illustrations. Uh-huh. And a lot of times it is exactly what I thought. Um, which just kind of, to me, shows that there's a little bit of a science behind pacing a picture book. I yeah, mean, right. you know, you can pretty pretty much tell. Um, but then sometimes there will be a surprise or two that I think is perfect. I've never been, I know some authors have, but I've never been disappointed in mm. the art for my picture books or the, the way it was paced out. Um, I, I might have been surprised the very first time I read it, like did a page turn and it, you know, but yeah. I've never been, I've never been disappointed. Um, and I just think that's the power of collaboration, you yeah, know, yeah. it's really exciting to me that I get to collaborate with so many different people. I know I'm always jealous of the, of the people who do the kind of writing, whether it's songwriting or playwriting or, or picture book writing that require a level of collaboration that's not as common in, in fiction yeah, yeah, because they all say, you know, it, it, it's an. You used a used a term a minute ago. I think you said an expansion of the story. Is it? Did you? Is, does that phrase sound like something you said? Yeah, or an extension. Expand extension. Or yeah. The story. Yeah. And uh, uh, I love that, and and, and I lo- also love the reminder and co- collaboration. This this doesn't quite belong to you the way that maybe a fiction writer can think of this as is my thing. Yeah. Um, and even for a fiction writer, it's not really my thing the way I, you know, I might think of it as my thing. And, you know, it, for one thing, it, without a reader, it doesn't have any life, you know. Oh, exactly. And that, I mean, that just as you were talking about that, that's what I was thinking. When we hand it off to the reader, it takes on a life of its own. Yeah. It's not, it's no longer ours. And, you know, they can, they can interpret it or read it from their own experience. I mean, isn't that's also what's exciting to me. Um, yeah. So you do kind of have to have an open hand with your creative work. Yeah. Um, right. Rather than, um, you know, this work is going to, you know, do something for me or it's going to, to this work is going to be my servant going out in the world yeah. and to do my bidding. That's, that's yeah, that's not how it works. And um, it's much easier, again, in a collaborative environment, I think, to, to um, I would think, I should say, it would be a little more obvious that this is true. Um, yeah, I think so too, and it, that's ex- that's exciting to me. I I think, and we were talking about universality earlier and making the story universal, and I think that helps that collaboration. Yeah. You know, more heads make for more heads in our hands in the work make for more universality. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to change. I'm going to change directions just a little bit um, because I have heard you talk about. Um, Sweetie Pies and Smart Alex before, and I, I I love I love that way of thinking about characters and the way that 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 can uh, that distinction um, can help drive a a 
a story when when maybe you're stuck. So can you yeah can you talk about what you mean by sweetie pies and smart Alex? Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of like the chicken or the egg, right? So some people say if you're writing a story, should you begin with character or should you give, begin with plot? And I think you know, did the chicken come first or the, did the egg come first? It's kind of that same thing. It's um, and it, it's probably either. You can start in either direction. Sure. But I think at some point you have to consider uh, the character's motivations. And when, I, when I'm, I start out by just talking about the main character's motivations, because that's the story arc. I mean, there are other individual character arcs within the story, of course. But when I'm thinking about a story, I think first from the main character. And um, they have to have... In order for a story to be a story, when I go into schools, that's one of the things that students tell me that they're learning all the time, that the main character has to have a want or a desire. They have to want mm-hmm. to do something or be something or accomplish something. Um, and in trying to think about how to get my characters to accomplish that want, I kind of settled on this theory, and it works for me. And I, you know, I don't know if it really works for everyone or for every character, but I kind of think of all characters as being on a spectrum from one end is sweetie pies and the other end is smart Alex. And mm-hmm. your sweetie pies, they, you know, they're sweet. They, um, life kind of happens to them. They, they don't really take much, much action. They just respond to their circumstances and your smart Alex, they, um, usually you're just kind of large and in charge running everybody down and you know they get yeah. what they want and yeah. they're taking lots of action um so in order for the sweetie pie to grow uh the sweetie pie has got to take action and then that changes how they view themselves so they have to have something they want and their want has to grow enough they face these circumstances where they fail and they grow a little bit and they fail and they grow a little bit and then finally they begin to um want this so badly that they get the gumption to take action to get it. That's the sweetie pie. So the sweetie pie's conflicts are first external, and their growth is first external in in that they take action. And then that begins, the resolution is that it changes how they view themselves. They have a little bit more confidence. They, you know, it changes the way that they view themselves. Well, the smart aleck, they, they would be just, you know, the, the exact opposite. They... Um, their circumstances start to press in on them. They get uncomfortable with something about their circumstances, and it begins to they it gives them some insight into who they are, uh-huh. and so they start to gain some insight about themselves, and that causes them, upon reflection, to change their actions. So they usually their their conflicts are usually first internal. Oh, I'm not who I want to be. Oh, I'm really you know people see me as really mean. Uh-huh. They begin to grow emotionally. And then they have external change. Their uh-huh. unacceptable behavior changes. And so it just helps me to think, you know, if I've got a character, are they more a sweetie pie or a smart aleck? And that tells me what direction that they need to grow in, what, um, what circumstances might cause their change. You know, uh-huh. is it internal or external? Yeah. What I need to, how I need to press in on them, how I need to torture them a little bit in order <laughs> to make them grow. Yeah. Um, and so that's, it's helpful to me because, you know, I'm, especially when I'm writing longer works, um, it's hard for me to know how to sustain that, um, their circumstances so that they end up moving towards what their growth needs to be. And so if I can identify kind of where they are on the spectrum, it shows me 
what direction they need to grow in to change and get what they want. And actually, sometimes for the smart aleck, they realize that what they wanted in the first place is not really what they should have wanted. So, yeah. you know, that's that's kind of kind of what happens. Yeah, characters like people aren't always very good at knowing what they actually want. Right. We, if they would just tell us, it would make our job so much easier. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, tell me about a, a Sweetie Pie in one of your stories. Okay, so in one of my stories, a Sweetie Pie is um, Surfer Chick. I wrote a picture book oh, called yeah, Surfer Chick. Oh, yeah, I love Chick. that one. And, yeah, and it's about a chicken who actually wants to surf. Her dad is this big surfing pro, and... Um, she's, you know, she finally, um, her, her dad is this big surfing pro and she finally, Wait, did, did you, you know, say they're chickens? You mentioned that they're ch- actually chickens, right? Yeah, they are actually chickens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so her dad is a chicken. She's a chick. Um, it's a, that, that book was really fun to write because there's a lot of wordplay. I could include a lot of chicken humor. You never really know how much chicken humor there is until you, you know, um, but she is, uh, a little bit frightened. She's young. She's a chick, and the ocean is really big, and the waves are really big, and so she has a couple of failures, um, and she sits on the shore and watches her dad surf and um, kind of reflects on what she needs to do, and then she she realizes she has to choose to be brave. If she's going to get it done, she has to choose to be brave. And so she's a sweetie pie that has to kind of gather her gumption, exactly. It's what I said earlier. You know, she has uh-huh. to gather her gumption, and then she... She gets in the water. It's a picture book, so uh, that time she does have success. It probably takes a little bit longer in real life. As a matter of fact, I know it takes longer in real life to learn to surf. Um, But, you know, she has her moment of success there. And then she realizes that, you know, choosing to be brave can help her to accomplish the things that she wants. And so that's the the sweetie pie. Her, she begins to, um, she, she, wants something so bad that she decides to take action to get it, and that helps her view herself differently. Uh-huh. She views herself as someone who is brave, you know. Um, and then the smart aleck, I, my favorite example, I think I've told you this before, my favorite example of the smart aleck is a picture book called Mother Bruce by Ryan Higgins. And um, the, I'll share it as an example, even though it's not my book, because it's just so easy. It's this grumpy, grumpy bear and he finds some eggs, and all he wants to do is make an omelet. But before he can make the omelet, the eggs hatch. And he is suddenly the mother to a bunch of geese. Um, and he remains grumpy. And so just like we said before, um, you know, he's got this conflict. But as he's, as he's trying to get rid of the geese, he's also sort of inadvertently taking care of them. And it causes him to, to care for them. You know, uh-huh. he, they're, they're live creatures now, so he no longer wants to eat them. Um, you know, it's again, it's a picture book. I suppose a bear would eat a goose just as yeah, easily right. as an egg, but um, but he's growing emotionally, and he kind of grows attached to them. Um, and so then, eventually, his actions change. You know, he flies them south for the winter. He takes care of them. Yeah, he's yeah. Mother to some geese, and so, but it he had to first begin to recognize what internal changes he needed to make. And so, uh, now, he's my favorite smart aleck. If it sounds like maybe you're talking about um, another way to say the, the things you've been saying is a um, the changes for a sweetie pie. It's not that their desires change so much as their gumption or their willingness to to pursue their desires change, 
And for a right. smart aleck, their desires have to change. Is is that is that fair to say in your in your categories that you've set up? Yeah, I think that would at least be true in some stories. You know, the mm-hmm. sweetie pie, um, their actions change first before their view of themselves does, and then for the smart aleck, their their um, you know how they view themselves changes yeah, yeah. for yeah. their actions. And so, yeah, I think that would definitely be true. You know, again, like I said. This may not be true for every story, but figuring this out and figuring out what your character's motivations are, what direction of growth they might need to take, and whether that growth initially needs to be primarily internal or external, uh, that helps me to figure out how to, what direction to go in with my story and what, you know, what action points I need to take along the way. So that's, that's really helpful to me. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really helpful tool to have in the tool belt. You know, it it might not explain all of fiction for all of time, but but, uh, really a really helpful tool. I love it. Yeah, and honestly, it helps me even in real life and dealing with people. You know, oh, you're a smart (laughs) aleck. Okay, I just need to give you time to figure out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. All right, last question. I I know this is dangerous to ask a children's librarian, (laughs) but what are the... Uh, authors who make you want to write? Well, for picture books, probably Mim Fox. Um, and then beyond that, um, I can I can think of a couple, maybe not authors, but picture books, a couple of picture books that make me want to write with Mother Bruce and A Visitor for Bear mm-hmm. by Bonnie Becker. The, um, those two I really love. But then for longer work, I really love Katie Camillo, the themes of light and darkness in her work. Mm-hmm. Um, two similar authors to her, Linda Urban and Barbara O'Connor. They really have contemporary stories that um, are all about adolescents coming to know who they are and to find their own voice. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important. And then for older work, um, Gary Schmidt, Francisco X. Stork. I uh, really love A Monster Calls by Patrick Ness. Mm-hmm. I love... I love beautiful language and evocative stories, stories that resonate, stories that um, cause reflection. And so those YA writers, those young adult writers, um, really appeal to me. Yeah. And then beyond that, you know, poets. I love Mary Oliver. I love Jared Manley, Hop- Manley Hopkins. I love, I mean, you know, I, but those kinds of things. Picture books and poetry, I read widely, a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, I- so I'm I'm surprised to hear Gerard Manley Hopkins makes you. I mean I love Gerard Manley Hopkins, but he doesn't make like I read that and think, oh gosh, that's amazing. I could never even begin to do that. Um, that makes you want to go try. Oh gosh, writing. yes. Yeah. I mean, play with words and like make them fit like the jigsaw and yeah. Yes, and then you know, um, I mean, I just, yes, I love it. Yeah. And yeah, I, I can catch on to phrases and poetry. Um, and hold on to them for weeks at a time, and they just, like, you know, resonate in my mm. mind. Yeah. Um, my children used to accuse me, like, I used to love to speak in rhyme to them, and so rhyme and <laughs> meter for me are, are kind of like play. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I do it a lot. I write a lot of poetry, but I don't necessarily try to publish very much. Um, if I were able to publish all the things that I write or all the things that I want to write, I need... I need more time than I have, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, right. Need um, more than that. Yeah, no, I six love. Or seven I hour. love. 
I love all kinds of poetry, but then I especially love poetry in form and, you know, with meter. Uh-huh. Because I like to try to, you know, yeah, fit that puzzle. to do it as well. Yeah. It is. It's like a, a puzzle. Yeah. I know. I, I love metered poetry, too. Um, all right, Christy, we better wrap up. Thank you so much. I have loved oh. catching up with you a little bit and hearing about how you do your work because I love your books. I, I uh, showed um, Dance Like Starlight to a to a class of Furman students um, a few weeks ago, as, as, um, and I've, I was very proud to tell them that I knew the author. Uh, thank you so much, J.R. I, I really... Um, I'm grateful for our connection, and I'm so grateful that you gave me the chance to talk to you today. And I'm grateful for how your life and writing has influenced my own. And so it's been a privilege to chat with you. Well, thanks. thanks. I hope we can talk again soon. Uh, Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song, Finch in the Pantry, as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.